This morning we're going to be in the book of Genesis, so I encourage you to turn there with me. First couple of chapters, so it's particularly easy to find this morning. And we're going to begin today a series on what's known as covenant theology. And covenant theology is a a construct that helps us to understand the message and the whole the whole message of scripture particularly as it pertains to Jesus. And so before we do that, let's go to him and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your words, we would pr- we pray that you would help us to understand them and not in a way that um, seeks our own glory or seeks our own seeks our own way that that is apart from you. But Father, uh, help us to understand them so that we might be convicted of sin, so that we might see your blessings and your mercies anew, so that we might be guided in your wisdom and your truth, because those that is what we find as we come to these pages. Holy Spirit, guide us, direct us, open our hearts, open our eyes, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the things that I thought of as I came to this uh, series and been thinking about this is I thought of something called the Rosetta Stone. You guys are probably all familiar with the Rosetta Stone. I actually have a little um, thumb drive in the shape of a Rosetta Stone. I think my mother-in-law gave that to me on her trip to London. Oh, it was fun. Uh, but what is the Rosetta Stone? Well, it was originally, it's this giant stone. It's about yay tall and pretty big, and it's nice and flat. And it has text from three different languages on it. It has, the, has a Greek text, and it has a text called Demotic, which is like an Egyptian priest kind of language. And then it has Egyptian hieroglyphics. And what's particularly interesting about this is it was originally described... Uh, written down in 196 B.C. concerning the uh, the Pharaoh Ptolemy. This is after the Greeks had come in and conquered Egypt, and um, and so the Greek had a heavy influence there. And, that's, and Greek was actually the language of Egypt at the time because of Alexander. But it was also written in the Egyptian words so that the Egyptian people wouldn't forget their traditions, and particularly the priests were the ones... Uh, keeping these traditions alive, and it was rediscovered, this giant stone was, was rediscovered in 1799 as Napoleon was conquesting through Egypt, which is pretty interesting, Egypt apparently gets conquested quite a bit, and it was very significant for the time, because for the very first time, uh, historians and and archaeologists, archaeologists, had discovered all of these different hieroglyphics and drawings in the, in the caves and in the tombs and had no idea what any of them meant. But for the very first time, they could now understand what they were looking at because the Greek text corresponded with the hieroglyphics, and it was a direct translation. And so now, all of a sudden, ancient Egypt is just opened up, and it's now able to be understood for the very first time in history. Something that was completely lost is now understood. And so as we begin our study on covenant theology, 
I understand covenant theology a lot like a Rosetta Stone for Scripture. And that isn't to say that one can't understand Scripture outside of this man-made construct called covenant theology. So I'm not saying that. But covenant theology is a great thing for helping us to see how the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. Because it is. Because when I went to seminary, I knew that the whole Bible is about Jesus. I'd heard that. I knew that. I had trouble understanding that. But it wasn't until one of my professors showed me this common thread of the covenants that goes all throughout Scripture, that weaves its way throughout Scripture, that this finally came to life. I could now see how Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, all these great men, but they weren't great men on their own merit. They were great men because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, working its way all the way back there in the Old Testament. The church today, unfortunately, at many times has drawn a very thick and sharp dividing line between the Old and New Testaments. Seeing the Old as being under the law and the New as being under grace and how we are only New Testament Christians today in the sense that the Old Testament has very little application for us to learn other than to just show us, well, we should be like Daniel or we should be like David or whatever. Christianity Today actually published an article, uh, 2013, and the title of the article was, Do American Christians Need the Message of Grace or a Call to Holiness? And my answer is, yes. They need both. That's a false dichotomy. Why would we draw that? And they drew a line right down the middle. It makes no sense. Ligon Duncan, who was my professor on covenant theology and still is, I, I still listen to him a lot and owe a lot of his teachings to what I'm talking to you about now. He said this of covenant theology. He said, covenant theology is helpful to you in figuring out how to herald grace and to call to obedience and not to compromise either. So as we look at the covenants of Scripture, we're going to need to keep that in mind. That not only are we dependent on the grace of God, but we are also called to holiness. And so today we're going to look at the covenant of works. And again, these names are all man-made given names. You won't find the words covenant of works in Scripture. But the names are good names. And so I'm not like belittling them, but just like anything, we need to be careful not to be stuck wholly to the name. We're going to be looking at the covenant of works, and it can be found in Genesis 1 and 2, so I invite you to turn there. And the covenant of works has been called other things, covenant of life, covenant of creation, and again, so don't get stuck on the words, or, uh, you know, and some theologians are particularly bothered by the word works, and, because they don't want to associate that with salvation, and I understand that, so I'm going to call it the covenant of works, and we can talk about why if we want to later. And this shows us introductory relationship between God and his special creation, man. And as we do that, I want to look at three things. The promise of blessings, the threat of curse, and the redemption of a Savior. And so as we read the text, I invite you to stand with me. Genesis 1, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31, and then Genesis 2, 15 through 17. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is over the face of all the earth, and every tree that with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. So let's look at chapter 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first off, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about a definition. What is a covenant? There is a book uh, by a man named O. Palmer Robinson. He's a uh, was a pastor, professor for a long time. Now he's a missionary in Africa, and he's actually teaching at seminary over there. And his, he wrote a book called Christ of the Covenants. It's, it's, a, it's not a hard read. It's, it is a seminary textbook, but it's not you know, one of those it's in all Greek or whatever. It's not crazy. It's kind of easy to read. And his definition of that, of a covenant, is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And I like that definition. And again, it's a book from a Reformed and a Presbyterian view on covenants. It's not a real hard read. I have it if you want to borrow it. Um, but he talks about in a covenant there are some things that are necessary. And one of the things that's necessary are parties. There has to be parties, you know, to, not, not like a you know, fiesta, but like actual people that there's, a, that there's this covenant between. And this bond in blood denotes this, these two parties. In ancient times, a covenant would be made between a suzerain, and a suzerain is a fancy word for a king, and one of their vassals, and a vassal is someone that this king had taken over. And a covenant would be made between them. And the covenant often took the shape of, well, I've taken you over, and now you're going to do what I say. All right? God is the sovereign of this story. And we are his creation. We are his vassal in this case. The covenant isn't just a promise. I hear it's called that sometimes, and that's fine definition. But it's not just a promise, because promises, promises can sometimes be broken without any kind of repercussions for the parties involved. But a covenant is not like that at all. A covenant is called a bond in blood, because this bond actually was, had to do with, their, with the party's life. Both parties would swear to certain conditions 
the conditions were usually, like I said, you're going to follow my law, and then you can live, which is the best that a vassal could hope for, having just been taken over, if you think about that. Blessings were named. If you follow my law, then you'll have these blessings. If not, this curse will be put upon you. And the covenant was sealed usually with some sort of sign, usually the killing of animals, which is where the, where the blood comes from, but not always. And to break one of these covenants was to forfeit your own life for the suzerain or the vassal state, either one. And so as we read this first chapter in Genesis, Genesis 1.1 introduces us to the sovereign over all creation and thus the one who gets to decide the terms of the covenant. You've read Genesis 1.1 10,000 times in your life, but I'll read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why does he get to decide the terms of the covenant? Because he created everything. And with it before him, there was nothing. There is no before him. He existed forever before creation, and he'll exist forever after creation. That's not something we can wrap our heads around, nor do we have to, really. God assumes, or the Bible assumes that God exists. It never seeks to prove his existence. And so neither, neither do we, in that case. It assumes that God is going to be the sovereign. And then it goes through this, this list of creation. But then he, then he stops and he creates man. And if you'll notice, as you go through all of the creation, it talks about he created things after its kind and after their kind. And then when he gets to man, what does it say? In verse 26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So this is something completely different than what we've read so far. He created man in his image. He created man to have a special relationship with him. And this special relationship is this covenant that we're going to talk about. All the way back here from the beginning, God enters into a covenant with Adam and with Eve so that they will do what he's asked them to do. So let's look at the blessings of the covenant. This passage begins, if you'll go down to um, the verse 28, after he's created man, it says, and God blessed them. So the very first words that man hears are blessings. But what does it say right after that? Be fruitful and multiply, which is a command. And so in this case, the blessings that he's speaking upon his people are actually commandments as well. The blessings that he's speaking are actually commandments. And as we go through and look at all these different covenants, I want us to keep that in mind. That God doesn't simply just give commandments for the sake of commandments, but he gives commandments in order to bless his people. And, they, and even though God does have very strict requirements for what man, is, man ought to do, those commandments are blessings for us as well. So let's look at a couple of these commandments. First, he says to be fruitful and multiply. And so what, is, what are the blessings implied in that? And, and again, sometimes when you look at these blessings, you're going to see commandments embedded in them. You know, most of the time when we think of commandments, we think of what? We think of thou shalt not. Well, he's giving us a blessing here, and those blessings kind of have those thou shalt nots implied in them. 
What is the first blessing? In order to be able to be fruitful, in order to multiply, in order to fill the earth, which seems like a pretty tall task, they had to have the blessing of life. It assumes that Adam and Eve will have life in order to do this. And what is the kind of life that they're going to have? Is it the same as the birds? Is it the same as the creeping things and the animals in the sea? No. It is a life that is created in the image of God himself. This multiplying and filling the earth is a direct command to procreate, but this is also a blessing. I mean, imagine being in Adam and Eve's place. And we take this for granted a lot of times because we, you know, this, we just kind of take for granted everything that we live in. But they're able to live in God's world, the world that he created and said, that's good. They're able to live in his world and do so with a level of protection that will allow them to fulfill this commandment. I think that's incredible. Life is considered sacred at this point. Why? Because God made it. And man's life, in particular, is considered particularly sacred because God said, let us make man in our image. And so as we study the covenants, we need to understand that this idea of life is the most sacred thing. That God intends for his people to live and to have life. And what did Jesus say? I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually calls this covenant, calls it the covenant of life as well. It calls it several things, but it calls it the covenant of life because this covenant is ensured that man's life was going to be good. And that goodness was going to be beyond man himself and was determined beyond man himself. He was, it was good because God said it was good. God actually said it was very good. Another blessing that we see is the blessing of family. Be fruitful in multiplying denotes family. And families should be a blessing to us. This is a command, be fruitful and multiply. It's an imperative. And it is also a blessing. Having children is a good thing. And from the beginning, it is expected of God's creation to have children. And so as we study the covenants, I want us to keep in mind that this idea of the family will keep coming back. It will just keep coming back and coming back. Because the Hebrew people, the, the heritage of, one's, of, of a person was extremely important in the Hebrew culture whether you had a real good heritage or you had a particularly bad heritage. Those were very important things. Names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become synonymous with God's faithfulness. I mean, just read the Psalms. How many times do you hear those three names repeated? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the people of Israel leaned upon that idea that this is the family of God. This is his people. And I think particularly for us, as believers, as Christians in a culture that is not believing God and is actually walking completely away from Him, in a day where the definition of family is being challenged on lots of levels, not just from 
you know, the recent Supreme Court case, but on lots of levels, lots of ways. It's good for us to root ourselves here in this, in this, in this blessing, to remember that God's original design, what it was for, for family, and that it was a blessing. And then he commands them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over it. So what is this blessing? This is a blessing of possession. God gave us a land. says he put Adam in the garden to keep it. And he gave us a mandate to subdue it, to put it under our control. And the creatures therein, he doesn't waste any space. I'm talking about all the creatures, and he names them off, even the bugs. All right? They're under our control. This makes us owners. This makes us caretakers of something. So it is embedded in our being that owning and taking care of things is a good thing. This is a blessing of God. This is why we feel so violated when we're stolen from. I mean, I can have an eraser on my desk at school, and if it gets stolen, that just walks all over me. And it's like an 80-cent eraser. It's because it's embedded in me from creation that it's okay for me to own things. It's okay for me to have things. And it's a violation of who I am. Just like, a, just like taking someone's life, it's a violation. These are violations of what God put down from the very beginning. And this is why God said, Thou shalt not steal. Next you have a blessing of order. There is an order to creation. God put us at the top of that order for a reason. When everything is going as it should, like it was back here when God first created everything, Creation understands man's role, and man understands his role. And that is quickly going to get turned on its head in a couple chapters, and you know that. Adam gave all the creatures names, even. He gave them all names. Why? Because he had dominion over them. He got to decide what their name was. He was the protector of the garden. He was the head of his household. And this order that God had set up over all things was good. And it was a blessing. There's also the blessing of work. He was placed in the garden to keep it. And it is never seen as drudgery. We don't read in like someplace in here that Adam dreaded going to the garden that day. Because it was hard. It was hard work in the garden. No. It was a good thing. Sometimes I think we see our jobs as... You know, whatever, fill in the blank with your some sort of negative adjective. But work, I mean, if you take sin out of the equation, work is a glorious thing. Work is a good thing because God gave it to us and said, here, this is your garden. I want you to keep it. I want you to take care of it. That's work. Adam didn't just, like, sit on a hill and eat fruit all day. All right, he kept the garden. He tilled the garden. He kept it nice. That's a good thing. You know, what did God say? Six days you shall work. That's a commandment to work. Not only is it a commandment on, on the seventh day you shall rest, but on the six days you shall work. And we turn to Genesis 2. There's another blessing here. I think this blessing often gets left out because of the threat that comes right after it. But the blessing is you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, except one. If you read this in the Hebrew, you'll see that the word eat there is, is just repeats itself. Because Hebrew didn't have a way to 
express superlative like we do. And so they would just put words twice in a row. And it literally reads, while you are eating, you shall eat. That's a blessing. That's a good thing. He gave us things. He gave us provision. God is our provider, the creator of the world, the creator of all things that said light, and light was, is also our provider. That's a good thing. It's a constant reminder of his goodness for us. And what was placed in the middle of the garden so that they might remember that. And so I, I, would, I would even argue that, that what he placed in the middle of the garden was a sign of all of these blessings. And that was the tree of life. Many theologians will say that this is a sign of this covenant. And they were instructed to eat of its fruit as part of the fruit of the garden. It's a good thing. They were to partake of this blessing, whatever the blessing was for eating the tree of life. And I, so I think for us, we need to see the commands of Scripture as blessings. These opening commands to Adam, we have a hard time relating with, I think, sometimes, because, well, we're not the only two people on earth, and the animals won't listen to us anymore, and, and we have sin, which Adam didn't have. But these commands are a blessing for us even today, and we'll talk more about that. These are the first words to his people. And so, and I want us to be careful too, as we go into the threat of curse next, I want us to be careful that we don't see this first covenant as a, a quid pro quo with God, or a you do this, then I'll do this kind of thing. Because it's not that at all. Because did God wait for Adam to start doing good things before he started doing good things for him. No. The first words out of his mouth were blessings. And God loved Adam because he was his creation, not because Adam was somehow good intrinsically. And so let's be careful not to go down that, that road. However, that doesn't stop him from setting parameters, which we'll see here, and that's the next, the threat of curse. And so... While other, like I said, while other prohibitions are implied, you know, if, if there's a blessing of life, then we shouldn't kill. If there's a blessing of possession, we shouldn't steal things. There's one prohibition that is very specific one here, and this is in uh, verse 17 of chapter 2. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So for whatever reason, the Lord saw fit to not only place all these trees in the garden that we could eat, including this tree of life, but he also saw fit to place a tree that the people were not supposed to eat, Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat. And just that one tree, do not eat of it. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I think sometimes our, our response to looking at this is to think, well, that wasn't hard. And that's just kind of a simple command. And I think we even want to pass it off as, well, you know, I've, I've even heard some say, going to the extreme on that, well, the only thing they did was eat a piece of fruit. We'll talk more about this next week. But this is a command from God, the creator of all things, who gets to set down the rules. And so to not do this, or to, to eat of this tree, like Adam and Eve will do, is to is to deny God his own authority and to deny him his own sovereignty. And so this isn't just about eating fruit. It's about eating. It's about sinning against the holy God. 
And again, we have the words here that they will surely die. That they will die, die. While they are dying, they will die. This curse of death is spiritual and it's physical. They will die. That wasn't the intention of the garden. But if you eat of this, everything that, all the blessings that I've said are going to be dumped on their head. And it's going to be a struggle. And we'll see that in chapter 3. We'll talk about that next week. So imagine, man could have lived here and been without any want or need and had every blessing abounding, but yet that wouldn't be. And we know that. And I think sometimes we'd like to think, well, if the only thing I had to do is not eat a fruit, then I think I'd be really good. I'd just go and do my own thing. But we all know that's not the case, because I feel like our commandments to God right now are really simple, and I have a hard time keeping even one of them. And so this brings it around to our Savior. This is why we need Jesus. What did Jesus do for us? He fulfilled the demands of this covenant. He kept all the demands of this covenant so that we could have the blessings that we forfeited when we sinned. We get the blessings. He takes the curse upon himself. I think you see this really well in the Great Commission. So go uh, Matthew 28. Turn there with me. And as we talk about Jesus, as we're talking about the covenants, understand that Jesus' role was to redeem. And what does it mean to redeem? It means to purchase back, to get back those things that were lost. Jesus' role is to get back the blessings that we lost because of sin. And look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 with me. And keep in the back of your mind what we just read in Genesis 1. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is Jesus saying here if he's not simply saying again what God said all the way back in Genesis 1? These commandments are the same. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth and fill it. And for the church, these are commandments for us. We are to go out into the world and preaching the gospel. Why? That his people might be multiplied. That that we might be fruitful. We are to go out making disciples of all nations, teaching them his commandments. Why? That we might... Subdue it for God and His glory. And these are blessings for the church. We shouldn't see this commission as, as hard work. We shouldn't see this as something, oh, it wasn't for that great commission, I'd, I'd be all right. No, this is a blessing for the church to go out and be able to preach the gospel, to see people saved, to make disciples, to teach the things of God. This is good. We should be going out into the world, preaching the gospel. Why? Because it's a blessing to us, and it's a blessing to them. Making disciples of all nations, baptizing. What are we doing when we do that? 
We're adding to our family. Because we now know in Christ that family means much more than mom, mom and dad, brother and sister, doesn't it? We are all in Him. We are all one in Him. His children. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus came back to make all of this sin that happened right again. And we'll even eat from the tree of life again. Turn to Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible. And brothers and sisters, I think that it's no mistake that Genesis 1 says what it does, and Revelation 22 says what it does as the bookends of this book. Revelation 22, 1 through 5 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What is his intent for us in Jesus Christ? That everything that was made wrong will be made right again. Remember Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden so that they couldn't eat the tree of life? In Jesus Christ, we are ushered back into the garden that we might partake of this tree of life once again. He is making everything that was wrong right again. He connects Genesis to Revelation. And like I said, just like the Rosetta Stone, Understanding these covenants and understanding this first one even is a key to seeing Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture. And so for us, what, what should this do for us? This should renew our love for Scripture. Let me encourage you to be reading through it, particularly the stories in the Old Testament where I think you see this redemptive arc the most because you see people that we would want to make good, but they actually weren't very good. And they required a Savior, just like we do. They have a lot to teach us about our Lord. They have a lot to teach us about His plan for redemption. Because we see that happening over and over with the saints in the Old Testament. He was their Savior too. They needed Jesus, just like you and I did. And they looked forward to His day, just like we look back and proclaim His name, what He did for us. Let me encourage you, over the course of the next week, to read... Genesis 3, about the fall, we're going to be talking about this. Particularly focus on Genesis 3.15. And think about Genesis 3.15 as it works itself out through the rest of Scripture. I mean, you can read Genesis 4 to see how it begins working itself out. But you can see it throughout the rest of Scripture, that God has a plan for His people. And all the way back in Genesis, we see the Gospel preached. And I think it's also something for us to remember that our sharing the gospel is a part of the work that God would have us to do to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Because remember, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power to save. So let us take it out to those who are in need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am continually amazed that for your people, you would come and suffer 
death and shame and ridicule, pain, and all the other things that you had to suffer through so that the wrongs that I did and the wrongs that I continue to do can be made right and that one day I get to be with you. So, Father, as we go through your book, help us to see your son Jesus on every page. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll stand together as we sing a song.